Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Steph Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. For today's question, what I want to know. Oh, Lord. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What is something, a sex myth or belief that you held that uh, you later learned you were way, way off? Okay, I'm trying to think. If you want, I can go first because I got a good one. Yeah, you go first. So, I believed, and this isn't really sex, but it's a misunderstanding of the female body. Uh, I believed that uh, you had, your baby came out the belly button and that uh, menstruation was a myth. And if in fact it was real, I thought it happened uh, in your ears. And the only reason I learned this wasn't true is because I kind of was like joking about, well, you know, it comes out your ears and you're, <laughs> and my mom was like, um, well, yeah, then yes, of course, we all give birth out our, our, our ears. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Wait. Why did you think it was your ears? I because I thought I I literally have friends who are mad about this, but I thought because my brother never went through menstruation that it was a myth. But uh, he did have like his ears would bleed and my ears would bleed, um, and so I thought maybe that's what people were talking about. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. And then when it, I actually did have my first period, I thought you only got it once. And when it happened again, that's when I was devastated. When oh, I learned, oh, this, this is, is okay. <laughs> this is forever until you step dry up, essentially. Okay. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's I have never that's the first for me as a myth or a misunderstanding. <laughs> that is the first I've ever heard that as an explanation. Not the belly button part, because you know, I think we all kind of believe that. Because I did mm-hmm. too while I was younger. Obviously, they came out of the belly button. Um, mm-hmm. but the ear. Wow. Yeah. I honestly yeah. can't remember because I was that kid that would learn things and then tell people. Mm. Like I was the bad kid. Uh, <laughs> and that was my rebellion because uh, I was very, I was sexualized really young. So right. I can't remember not knowing at least the basics kind of mm-hmm. of sex, except for the fact that I don't know. I can't remember. Ah, uh, man. I, I can think of so many I I had, um, but one one we're going to talk about in this is I thought uh, sex was just supposed to hurt yeah. for women. I think that's what I believed as well that that sex would always hurt for women and it didn't matter. Yeah. Um, as well as of course the beliefs that women can't say no, as well as uh, that they are obligated to have sex. Yeah. So yeah. I know the negative thing. So <laughs> at the, ga- at the <laughs> gate, really yeah. nasty, gross, like not nasty, gross, but really sad, nasty misconceptions of sex, but not yeah. necessarily myths of sex. So I did believe that those things mm-hmm. made sense in my reality. But yeah, the ear and the period, that's a new <laughs> one for me. <laughs> I told all my friends that. They thought it too. They did too? <laughs> they, so you were no, the bad no, kid giving I, the misinformation. Yes. I gave bad information. And let me tell you <laughs> how many angry phone calls I got when my friends got their first period. <laughs> oh, my God. I had to apologize no. many, many, many times. You lied to me. I didn't know. 
I guess some of those things I didn't think about, like with periods, I didn't even think about it. And mm-hmm. then like coming, because I didn't know about periods at all. And then as you learn yeah. about sex, and I'm like, oh, this is going to suck. Yeah, I, in my class group, I matured faster. So people would always ask me questions about those kinds of things, yeah. like my friends would. So they, I think I learned about it from them. But then I had no, clearly no information, no useful information to share. But I too thought, you know, I matured really early. So I thought I would know and I hadn't had my period yet. So that right. must not be real. My brother never had one. So it's all big lie. Right. One of the big lies about female bodies that I learned as a kid, because it was a like such a big deal. And of course, this is, again, the whole pitting women uh, as objects and procreation machines was that the minute you have your period is the minute you become a woman and it should be celebrated yeah. or it should be shamed. One of those two right. things, nothing in between. And so yeah. when I didn't get that, oh, I kind of got shamed in the sense of like, you don't need to make a big deal of it type of yeah. thing, but not like, oh, this is awful. You did something wrong. But right. yeah, that was a misconception I had that it was that big of a deal. I, I specifically remember a, a Cosby episode Mm-hmm. in which uh, one of the girls get their period and they start talking about having hips and being sexy now and the mom yeah. getting so upset because she wanted to celebrate with her mm-hmm. and becoming a woman and make this whole day of being feminine and a woman. And I'm like, what? And thinking that's the way it should be. And then the whole misconception of this makes you a woman is so untrue, which is dated way back in the idea that the minute you have your period is the minute you start trying for children because that's what you're good for. As we know this, right. women were sold off at that point of being a woman because they bled, quote unquote. But yeah, huh. Ears. Huh. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> clearly I could have used better information as a child and I could have used the book we're talking about today. Yes. Uh, brief trigger warning before we get into this. There's just mentions of uh, sexual assault and trauma, nothing too big, but just put that out there. Um Today, we are talking about Emily Nagoski's 2015 Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life, which a couple of you have written in about and suggested. So we always take in the book club recommendations or pretty much any recommendations. So keep those coming. Thank you. Yeah, Nagoski is a sex educator who is passionate. And if you read her book as well as listen to any of the audio that she does, she is Mm -hmm. definitely passionate about sharing her knowledge and using science and evidence to improve our understanding of women's sexual well-being. Thank you very much. And Mm -hmm. in her exchanges with women and students, one of the number one things that she hears from women who have taken her class is some version of, quote, I learned I am normal, which is super nice to hear because you want to know that you're not strange and off balance (laughs) and that all of us vary. And that's normal too. And all the same parts organized in different ways is the mantra throughout this book. Yes, Uh, and the book uses science and the diverse stories of real women to unpack so much of the cultural shame and disgust women have been taught around our bodies and around sex and how we can unlearn those toxic messages and practice self-compassion. Like, with worksheets, there's activities, which both Samantha and I are big fans. (laughs) Did you do those? I was going to ask you that earlier. Yeah, I did too, and I was sitting there doing this. I didn't write everything out because it was... I'm like, okay, this is too much. I'm not ready for all of this. Uh, <laughs> but it's a great workbook because she does have a workbook with it too. Yeah, um, she does. But like, it's a great exercise for couples who are trying to uh, go through 
their own miscommunications and understanding of each other. So it is nice. But yeah, it was very uh, enlightening. Oh, it was. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and according to Reddit users in r slash sex, this book transformed a lot of their sex lives. Um, there's a whole conversation on there about it, uh, and it's very encouraging. I'm very happy for a lot of them. Right. <laughs> um, and I want to say, as someone, I've been pretty open. I don't particularly want sex. Uh, I've never had sex I enjoyed. I still found this very, very interesting and enlightening. I learned a lot. A lot. Uh, in fact, I'm kind of like, almost everything she touches on this in this book, I was like, oh, that could be a whole episode. That could be a whole episode. Yeah, I did too. Um, yeah, so we really had to condense it for this book club, but I'm sure we'll return to uh, some of the, the topics she touches on future episodes. Um, and it definitely helped me make sense of things I've experienced with sexual assault. Um, and also what turns me on, which I get so many questions about this because my friends just sort of don't understand. And that's totally fine, but it was... It, this helped me understand myself even more. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, because I, I have experienced a lot of confusion around, around that and around what I thought was a very uh, abnormal thing to be turned on by, essentially. Not really. Yeah. <laughs> she does a great job. And she, I love her one line when she talks about her friend when she says, I just don't want sex and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Of course, that, be, that unfolded to her and her partner. But it was like, yeah, that's exactly what should be said. If you don't want sex, it's not abnormal. You don't have to have sex. And that's okay, too. I did love yes. that. I know we're yes. going to talk more about it. But that was that made me think of you. Uh-huh. Because yeah. I know we've talked many a times about feeling you feeling like it's wrong that you didn't want to have sex and felt guilty yeah. about that. So I did mm-hmm. love that line. But... Uh, it was 2015 when she wrote this, and I think we've kind of come a little ways, not a long ways, but she does yeah. have a caveat, which is, quote, for most of the time when I say women in this book, I mean people who were born in female bodies, were raised as girls, and now have the social role and psychological identity of woman. And there are plenty of women who don't fit one or more of those categories, but there's too little research on trans and genderqueer sexual functioning for me to say with certainty whether what's true about cisgender women's sexual well-being is also true for trans folks. Yes. And there's actually some been some conversation around that uh, recently. Right. And she delves um, a little bit into it uh, about mm-hmm. genderqueer sexuality. But yeah, we have seen an opening of new studies as of recent, but I hate that caveat. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate. <laughs> right. But it's true. Sometimes what you don't have, you don't know. Um, also, hey, There are plenty of metaphors and puns throughout, so be prepared and excited. Just the usage of the term, the garden, and it's not what you think. (laughs) She was, but but when I initially heard her say the garden, I was like, oh, no. Yeah. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yeah, what's it? There's some movie reference she threw in there, and I was like, whoa. Yeah, she threw in Groundhog Groundhog Day. Day. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, okay, okay, we're going completely from a different basis. Okay. I liked it. I I liked it. So the book is divided into four parts. One, the not-so-basic basics. Two, sex and context. Three, sex and action. And four, ecstasy for everybody. Each of these parts are then further broken down into topics. And yes, it is complete with worksheets and activities. And I will say, um, 
it's not a difficult read at all, but it's very dense. Like you're learning a lot right. in a short, like every sentence you're like, wait, let me sit with this for a second. Right. And that definitely comes in with like, while we say there's puns and uh, metaphors, yeah. there's also a lot of science behind yes. it and a lot of uh, evidence base. So therefore you're going to get to technical terms and you have to kind of reassess the words over and over again because you don't technically apply these things in sexuality most of the time. Right, right, right. So mm-hmm. yeah, you definitely have a moment of like, let me go back. What did she just say? Let me look at yeah. this. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, and she does a great job of uh, explaining it. It's just uh, dense. Not mm. not difficult, but dense. Yes. Uh, in a good way. Surprisingly, human sexuality, there's a lot to be said and a lot of science there. Um, one of the first things the book tackles is the man as default myth, something we've talked about so much on this show and how damaging that is and has been in making women believe something is wrong with them if their experience doesn't match men's and particularly a male partner's. Nagoski calls this men's sexuality light, like this belief that we've treated women's sexuality as exactly the same as men's sexuality, but lesser. Right. Uh, yeah. Whether it's lesser as in it doesn't mean as much and or there's something wrong with those men, women because they can't match. Yes, and with the science, uh, for a long time, hasn't been there. Yeah. Because uh, we've just assumed, you know, science has just assumed women are the same. Right. So... So, as a part of this, women, surprise, have been told a lot of lies. Uh, She writes, just relax, they've been told, have a glass of wine, or women just don't want sex that much, get over it, or sometimes sex hurts, can't you just ignore it? I've heard every single one of those. (laughs) Every single one. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this idea that women should feel shame around their sexuality is an old idea. According to her, quote, Medieval anatomists called women's external genitals the pudendum, a word derived from the Latin hudera, meaning to make ashamed. And I'm sure I butchered that pronunciation. I did not take Latin. I didn't take Latin either. You're yes. better with languages than I am. Uh, mm. And <laughs> since there's been this long history of misinformation of just the bare minimum of science and understanding around the female body, the book starts with the not-so-basic basics. So examination into female body parts, how they work, and how all of that interacts with the brain. And one of the key parts of this section is the clitoris. Mm-hmm. Da, da, da. So she <laughs> writes, the clitoris is, oh, here we go, the hokey pokey is what it's all about. Two turntables and a microphone is where it's at. A Visa card is everywhere you want to be. It is your grand central station of erotic sensation, averaging just one-eighth the size of a penis, yet loaded with nearly double the nerve endings. It can range in size from a barely visible pea to a fair-sized gherkin. And anywhere in between, and it's all normal, all beautiful. Unlike the penis, the clitoris' only job is sensation. The penis has Four jobs, sensation, penetration, ejaculation, and urination. Two different ways of functioning, one shared biological origin. And if that wasn't enough, (laughs) she really hammers home the power of knowing where your clitoris is. Not just the clitoris in general, but yours. And in fact, one of the first things she suggests is getting a mirror and looking at your genitals and finding it. As a sex educator, she also discusses the difficulty of finding images of vulvas that aren't thin, white, shaved, and how that impacts what we all think vulvas should look like. Because again, there is so much variation. Right. But if you're only getting shown this one type, this one type of image, then of course you're going to form in your head, going to compare how yours is different. Uh, Another thing this section spends time on is the hymen. 
And there are so, so many myths and powerful stories about the hymen, most of them to control women. Uh, the idea, the hymen is a marker of precious, precious virginity, uh, which in itself is biologically meaningless. Uh, there's even hymen reconstructive surgery. Women have been killed over not having one, are told they couldn't have been raped because their hymen isn't damaged. So some hymen myths she goes into, that it breaks and stays broken, uh, everyone has a hymen, which isn't true. The size changes based on penetration. It doesn't. It bleeds. It usually doesn't. Uh, the bleeding is usually a vaginal tearing due to lack of lubrication. But again, I've heard all of those things too. Right. That precious, precious jewel. Yeah. Um, uh, we have so much more to go over. But first, we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Thank you, sponsor. Right. So another key aspect of the book are sexual response models, particularly the dual control model. While earlier models didn't account for desire, this one does, finally. As the name suggests, it comprises two main parts, sex accelerators and brakes. Uh, to get more specific, you have the sexual excitation system, CES, and the sexual inhibition system, CIS, that vary from person to person. The CES takes and evaluates sexually relevant stimuli and sends the turn-on signal, like pressing the accelerator. Uh, and the SIS, it takes in potential threats in the environment and sends the turn-off signal, like pushing the brakes. And these could include things like fear of social judgments or unwanted pregnancy. And according to this book, a sensitive brake is the biggest predictor of sexual issues or problems. And, and you can have high levels of both, low levels of both, average levels of both are opposing values. All of this trying to understand sex is a big business for farmer, and particularly right now, uh, sexuality of women. Uh, sex dysfunction pills have one of the highest observed placebo effects in women, 40%. And that is really, really high. Right. Uh, but that actually leads to the next point. Another huge part of this book is sexual context, which is pretty much the circumstance and environment of sex. And according to the author, it's one of the most important things when it comes to having sex. A part of this is finding your emotional one ring. Yes, the one ring to rule them all like Lord of the Rings. Yes, so many <laughs> metaphors. Yes, uh, the one ring breaks up pleasure into three things, enjoying, expecting, and eagerness. She writes, expecting, anticipating, eagerness, wanting, and enjoying, liking are separate functions in your brain. You can want without liking, craving, anticipate without wanting, dread, or any other combination. For most people, the best context for sex is low stress, plus highly affectionate, plus explicitly erotic. When it comes to context, stress has a huge impact, which also varies from person to person, which shouldn't be a surprise. There are flatliners, stress hits the brakes, versus redliners, stress hits the accelerator. She writes, in fact, more than half of women report that stress, depression, and anxiety decrease their interest in sex. They also reduce sexual arousal and can interfere with orgasm. Chronic stress also disrupts or suppresses the menstrual cycle, decreases fertility and lactation, and increases miscarriage, as well as reducing genital response and increasing both distractibility and pain with sex. In a good sexual context, pretty much anything can turn you on versus a bad one, nothing will. The example she gives a lot is tickling. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're in a good place, tickling can be wonderful. 
And if you're in a bad place, very annoying. <laughs> you don't she, want it. She says annoying a lot. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> trust is perhaps obviously a part of a good context for a lot of people, not all people. Uh, trust of others and of yourself. That comes up to trusting yourself. Uh, one example of this are fantasies. When it comes to fantasies, it's safe where the same situations in real life would be threatening. One of the reasons I wanted to include that is because I do, like when I list out all the crushes I've had in my life, almost all of them are fictional. And so this made a lot of sense to me. I'm like, oh yeah, I don't have to really worry about what's going to happen with this fictional character. Right. <laughs> I, I, say, I think I, you and I talked about this before because I feel that same way where I'm like, if I am thinking of someone, I don't think of people I actually know. Yeah. To actually yeah. know them puts it too real. And I'm like, uh-uh. So I've never yeah. actually had that as a thing mm-hmm. for me. I think I, when I would dream it, I would feel so awkward. Like if I had yeah. a sex dream about a person that I could not look at them in the eye. I'm like, nope. We can't talk yeah. for two weeks now. <laughs> <laughs> That's the period. It's the COVID-19 sex dreams at the same. <laughs> yep. That's where I know my quarantine. All right. Yeah, sex dream quarantine. That needs to be a song. Yes. Um, anyway, another part of context is trauma, both for survivors and co-survivors. Um, and I, I thought it was interesting that she included both perspectives because um, I know we've talked about co-survivors before, but just how it does impact them as well. And um, she goes over three broad approaches to coping with residual trauma. Top-down approach, processing the trauma, bottom-up approach, processing your body, and the sideways approach, mindfulness. And of course, she delves into so much more detail in all of those things. If you, again, if you are interested in any of this, highly recommend you read the book. Um, but yeah, those are the the ways of coping with residual trauma she goes into. Um, it also goes into uh, attachment styles and love and the impacts those things have on sexual context, which I also found really interesting. And again, she does have a workbook. So if you really want to dig into where you are or working things Mm -hmm. out, I think a workbook would be wonderful. And it also goes into sex positivity in a sex negative culture. She breaks down the sex negativity into three main messages for women around sex. One, the moral message, you are evil. The medical message, you are diseased. And the media message, you are inadequate. Uh, Linda Bacon literally wrote the book on Hayes, Health at Every Size, The Surprising Truth About Your Weight, based on her decades of research on nutrition, exercise, and health. And there are four major tenets according to the Hayes Manifesto, or again, H-A-E-S. One, accept your size. Two, trust yourself. Three, adopt healthy lifestyle habits, including joyful physical activity and nutritious foods. And four, embrace size diversity. I think she does a really great job in breaking down how we see ourselves as a young girl before we are told what is right and what is wrong. She does a wonderful job and how that is fed into us. And then we become doubting ourselves. And I will tell you, one of the reasons I say a lot of the times I have so many attachment issues and had so much trauma, I didn't have sex until later on in life. Well, of course, I was also religious, but a big part of that was also my weight and being mm-hmm. thicker and being, being heavier than what I knew was normal. In a white culture, being skinny is number one. Um, so for me, being a thick Asian girl, which means I've already been disqualified of two of the <laughs> perfect standards, mm-hmm. I would did not want anyone to see me. I covered myself up. I think I told you the story that I used to always wear long skirts and mm-hmm. t-shirts, because not just because... You know, oh, yeah, I'm trying to stay pure. It was more of I'm ashamed of what my body looks like, and this is the best way to hide myself. Yeah, yeah. And um, she does spend a lot of time on weight and on how 
so many of us, for so many women, that is one thing that uh, takes us out of sex is that you're so focused on like what you feel is wrong with your body. Right. Um, and of course, that's going to remove you from enjoying a moment. Right. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I have so many friends and myself included that we would, you know, you wouldn't take off your shirt when you went swimming or right. you just didn't want anybody looking at your body. And as she reiterates time and time again, you weren't born with those thoughts. Right. Uh, the culture that you live in and the people in your life, unknowingly or knowingly, gave you those thoughts. It is planted in your garden. It's planted. It's a weed. And you it's can decide weed. to get rid of it or to decide what to keep. But you do get to decide. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yes, yes. And disgust. She also talks about disgust when the huge impact that has on uh, the sex life of women uh, which disgust is, sexual disgust is largely associated with sexual pain disorders. And I was just thinking about, for me, as someone who works on the show and a very, like, sex positive, I still have just, like, lingering kind of knee-jerk, like when we did the sex words episode and I got mm -hmm. so embarrassed or, like, just taught, thinking about, like, some of the things she would write about, like, sticky right. uh, and, like, smells. And, like, it's not disgusting, but I have that, like, knee-jerk thing that... I've just been fed and it has grown within right. me. Her continuing uh, to say the word yum throughout, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it it kind of like made me have a moment. Especially, and I do, I'm not going to lie, I don't love the term yuck your yum. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. It's always been like, uh, I don't, don't say that to me. And the first time I heard it, which by the way was recently, I was like, what is, what did you say to me? <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it definitely has, like the book has that moment of like, oh, ooh. I, I really need to rethink about this as a normalized thing because I still have, even as open and as forward as I can be, it's yeah. still I still had moments of not necessarily just triggered, but being very uncomfortable, even though it is absolutely yeah. normal. Yep, 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 yep. And the book does go into some ways of unlearning these top messages of body shame and shame around sex and sexuality. And uh, just to be clear about the medical message of those, those three basic messages she says women gets, um, it not only encompasses like things like unwanted pregnancy and STIs, but that a lower sex drive when compared to a partner means you are broken or something is wrong with you. That, that there's something wrong with you if your experience doesn't match this male's default experience. Right. I also like her comparison um, when she was talking about the woman uh, who had a disability, who I think she was in a wheelchair, was mm -hmm. uh, told by the doctor that they couldn't help her uh, pain, and so therefore she couldn't have sex, essentially. Yeah. And mm -hmm. then her being so frustrated. It's true that uh, doctors don't care about women enjoying sex, so therefore they don't believe when a woman says they can't have sex. As where if yeah. like, a man was talking about their penis or having, you know, erectile dysfunction, mm -hmm. they're immediately able to just prescribe something and say, yeah, absolutely, we can fix that. Yeah, it's so important that we fix it. So that. important. <laughs> yes. Um, Another thing a lot of women report as part of all of this messaging is spectating. And I've heard from a lot of my friends about this. And this is basically being outside of your body while having sex. And it's usually things like, yeah, worried about how you look, um, about whether or not you're going to orgasm, like having this pressure to, to do that. Um, all kinds of things. And I remember forever ago, we did an episode on on that, and, I, and I'm sure the numbers have changed now, but at the time it was like, what are most women thinking about when they have sex? And it was like body image, 
uh, orgasm, and then the third one was like groceries or di- like basic tasks, daily plans. Yeah, <laughs> like all the stuff they have to do essentially. And stress is a huge, huge, huge part of uh, what Nagoski believes is impacting sex lives, and we are going to talk about that. Um, but first, we're going to take one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. Thank you, sponsor. Right. So something else the book tackles is the power of self-criticism as a moral force and the difficulty of letting it go. I think we've all been there, which also is a huge stressor that doesn't just impact sex, but all aspects of our lives, particularly women's lives. And we've seen it as we are in the middle, again, of a pandemic and responsibilities falling a lot on the women in the household or the main... uh, female partner. And one of the main ways to combat self-criticism, according to Nagoski, is self-compassion, which is further broken down into self-kindness, which is really hard. It could be kind to yourself sometimes. But she did a really great um, exercise in which she tells you to write a letter and address mm-hmm. it to uh, your daughter or your sister and then apply that same language to yourself. And I think Mm -hmm. that's wonderful. Uh, Common humanity, the opposite of isolation, (laughs) which is funny right now talking about what's happening, but you know. (laughs) And then mindfulness, being non-judgmental about what's happening at the current moment, even though she also talks about the whole going back and forth about being annoyed for being annoyed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And how to let go of that. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that until I read that section. I was like, oh, yeah. 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 That is something I experience quite a bit of. (laughs) (laughs) And mindfulness is something I've been working on a lot during quarantine, and it has changed. I can notice, like, incremental improvements in the way I uh, treat myself. Yeah, she talks about it as also not just for sex, but just, like, your anxiety and depression and how it is really helpful. And it has been, as we know, kind of a lot of these apps and uh, meditation apps are specifically not necessarily about meditation, but mindfulness and have reworded what that is and how that is helpful and beneficial. Yes. Uh, Another main focus of the book is something called non-concordance. And she writes how most people don't know what this is or don't understand it properly. And I definitely count myself in that group. Um, Mm -hmm. So this is something everyone experiences when genital response doesn't match the experience of arousal, which arousal is something that happens in the brain or having a biological response to sexually relevant data. So expecting, but not experiencing the eagerness or enjoying part of pleasure necessarily. Um, One study found that the overlap between these two is as low as 10% for women, about 50% for men. Yeah, that number was shocking, that 10%. I kind of just sat there at that number. I was like, wow, damn, that's a giant, huge difference. And that's a low-ass number. Yeah, and this is another thing with the the male as default um, mm. because she gives the example of Fifty Shades of Grey, which I've never read, but I've read a lot of fan fiction that uses the same idea of like, well, your body can't lie. Like you right. can tell me one thing, but your body is telling me something else. And this leads to a dangerous habit of assuming that women's bodies are the quote, honest indicators and that, yeah, they're lying or in denial when they tell you otherwise. And we've seen the power of this messaging when it comes to sexual assault cases, even representatives in our government. Right. She puts out the one specific example of, is it the representative who said that 
if a woman is raped, their body automatically has defenses to yeah, not to shut be that pregnant. Down. You're, yeah, you're like, what? Yeah, so if you the get pregnant, hell? the understanding, and you this is an age-old understanding, yeah. if there's some part of your body that was right. into it, which is so, so damaging and awful. And a huge lie. <laughs> yes, wrong, lie. wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> but yeah, I think that she, I love that she does talk about that. She even talks about it as for men. Um, and she had that yeah. one example of a, a guy who didn't stop assault happening because he had an erection. Yeah. But, and so that he felt like that meant he was also a pervert too. In actuality, there's a lot of things that have happened between men and women when things, again, are your body physically reacts to something that it has mm-hmm. nothing to do with what your desire actually is. And so mm-hmm. I was like, wow, she flipped that. She flipped that on its head, and that's a really great example. Also frustrated me to know that there are a lot of men out there who have seen this happen and don't say anything. Yep. And that pisses yep. me off. But that's a, whole other, <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. But that was one of those that I sat there for a minute. And I was like, huh, this would be an interesting episode. Yep. So let's talk about it. Why is it? But anyway, I digress. So... <laughs> Nagoski also digs into the size of spontaneous versus responsive desire, which kicks in after sexy things have already happened, as opposed to just seeing someone and wanting sex, versus context-dependent desire, which is desire that really depends on the context. Yeah, and and it was interesting because throughout the book, she has kind of these four couples that mm-hmm. she's using as examples of working through these things to help like give you a, a concrete example and just it seemed like every couple did not understand the differences in this. Right. Um, another point she hammers home is that sex is not a drive, but an incentive motivation system. And that calling sex a drive fosters an environment where women think they're sick. Uh, the percentage that experience spontaneous desire is far lower than men. And it also fosters a sense of male sexual entitlement, that it's this thing that they have to have. And I haven't honestly thought much about that verbiage and the depth of the meaning that it has attached to it. Um, because, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I've, I've heard that term and I've used that term. And, and then rethinking, oh, yeah, sex is not needed for living, as in it's not going to kill you if you don't have sex. And by placing it as a need, it does give men and society an excuse of having sex as a means of survival. So it's not necessarily something they earn, but must have. And is, right. is given. Um, it's such a breakdown in language, which we've talked about so many times. And then again, another way of controlling women, though we know it on the surface, like we know this on the surface, but language like this does have a very dangerous consequence. And I kind of was like, wow, yeah, she really, that she's completely right. Sex drive mm-hmm. is, should be eliminated from our language because it has this verbiage that men can't control themselves, shouldn't have to control themselves because it is instinct. And that's bull****. Yep. And I know we've talked about before um, growing up and just feeling like it was my duty. Like if a guy, heaven forbid he have blue balls, then I've done something terrible. Right. And I would owe it. Like, yeah, it's it's very damaging. Right. Being in a relationship, being in that close proximity, being uh, flirty means that Mm -hmm. they are owed this Mm -hmm act, whether you want to or not. And that's such a, a wow, it kind of just blew my mind. I was like, yeah, that that language in itself builds itself up to yeah. have that toxicity and allows mm-hmm. them to get away with these things. Yeah. Um, yep. But pivoting, uh, there is a whole section on orgasms, um, which she defines as, quote, the sudden involuntary release of sexual tension. Uh, 
And further quote, orgasms vary from woman to woman, from context to context. They happen while you're making love and sometimes they don't. They happen while you're masturbating and sometimes they don't. They can happen from clitoral stimulation, vaginal stimulation, thigh stimulation, anal stimulation, breast stimulation, earlobe stimulation, or mental stimulation with no physical contact at all, or not during any of these. They can happen while you're asleep, while you're exercising, or while you're in a variety of other completely non-sexual situations. They can be delightful, humdrum, spiritual, annoying, ecstatic, fun, or frustrating. Sometimes they're awesome. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes you want them. Sometimes you don't. And by the way, she has a whole uh, section on different ways to have different types of orgasm. Yes. Yes, she does. And I I really appreciated she put this in there because I do think as a culture, we've built the orgasm into this like end-all, be-all... If you don't have it, something's wrong. Right. But, you know, it does vary (laughs) depending on the the mood and context. And sometimes, you know, they're fine. Right. Sometimes they are amazing. You know, I've talked about some orgasms on this show. (laughs) And this actually made me feel better about it. Because I was like, oh, look, it turns out that could happen. And I'm not some total outlier. You're Um, not. You just are better disciplined than the rest of us. Apparently, I found a context that works for me. (laughs) (laughs) But back to orgasms in this context can also be non-concordant. Because we societally treated men's pleasure as a default pleasure, we expect women to orgasm reliably from penis-vaginal intercourse. Yeah. Which can sometimes happen, but sometimes don't. And only 30% do and 70% don't. And I think that's kind of one of those things that has slowly seeped out to the world. Yeah. People are starting to realize it's okay. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it just never happens. Um, 80 to 90% of women who masturbate do it with little to no vaginal stimulation, focusing primarily on the clitoris. I knew it. You knew it. I knew it. You knew it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's not just men. Like, I grew up thinking that, too. Like, right. that's Plus how you have an orgasm. Yeah, and I, yeah. Do, I do also love she delves into the same-time orgasm. She talks about how rare that is, and that's great if you can, and if you like it, wonderful, but it's not a, you know, necessary yeah. thing, and it's not common, so it's okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I also like how she talks about, like, the pressure, especially on women, to have an orgasm almost means you're not going to have one. Like, it's one of those things that's taking you out of the moment of enjoying. Um, So, and and also just to reiterate, she said in that quote, reliably, like, it doesn't mean you you never will during penis-vagina intercourse, just like that reliable part of it. And that's the only way. Yes, it is not. No, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She also goes into things like meta-emotions, which is, yeah, how you feel about your emotions being annoyed about being annoyed. Uh, And Matt versus Terrain, how we're told sex should be and how it actually is and how all of that plays into our ideas of sex. And if sex is something that you're you're into, how how that sex can play out and how you can change those things. And just to be mindful of those things, too, uh, is a big part of realizing uh, your, the messaging you've received and how that impacts all of your life, but also sex. What is being planted in your garden? What is being planted in your garden? <laughs> what do you want to get rid of? What do you want to keep? <laughs> um, and I mean, communication too is, right. I mean, we could say that in every episode, but communication is key and not feeling embarrassed about having these 
honest conversations and not being embarrassed that you don't necessarily know. Like working, doing that work and figuring out what you do like and uh, being able to communicate that. Uh, yeah, it's very powerful stuff. Yes. It had me feeling like I got to share this with everybody I know. And <laughs> Well, that's her end. She's like, make sure, just share, if you share just one person, I've done my job. I just spread it amongst the peoples. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I guess we've done part of our job and we owe our listeners for that. Cause I, Thank you. Yeah, great suggestion. And yeah, yeah, honestly, this book is just a wealth of information. There are so, so many things we can unpack. It's so full of things I wish I had known when I was much, much younger. And we really only touched on the surface. So definitely recommend it. If any of what we've said uh, resonated with you or you want to learn more about any of the things we touched on, because we really didn't go in depth uh, with with much of this. So It's a lot. It is, and it's worth it. It, it is. is worth it. Um, but in the meantime, we would love any other book recommendations or recommendations at large or just to hear from you how you're doing. Uh, you can email us at stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at Stuff I Never Told You. Thanks as always to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Thanks. And thanks to you for listening. Stefo Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <laughs> 